0: You're listening to the First Corinthians, When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series, preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Take your Bibles, if you would, and look at First Corinthians, chapter 14 this morning. I thought last week that as we approach this chapter, that I would just be here for, you know, maybe one or two weeks and then move on. But then I start reading the chapter again, and I feel um, that it's important that we stay here for just a little while. We're speaking this morning again on the topic of the gifts of tongues. Uh, just for my own sake, uh, I want to ask you a question this morning. How many folks, when I say the gift of tongues, you have at least an idea or a comprehension of what that might be? Can I see your hand? The gift of tongues. Okay. okay, Thank you. Thank you. For others who did not raise their hand, I just say this to you. When we talk about the gift of tongues, we are speaking of the gifting of the Holy Spirit given in Acts chapter 2 of the ability for men to proclaim truth in a language that they had not previously known. That's Acts chapter 2. What we see today happening is not Acts chapter 2, and it's problematic. And so we're going to talk again today about the gift of tongues. We're going to see it in the context here, and we're going to mention the charismatic movement and I understand this morning as we approach this topic that it is polarizing. There are those who would believe that any time someone tries to express the gift of tongues today that they are demon-possessed. And they believe that. And on the other end of the spectrum, there are those who tell us that unless you possess this gift, you are missing out on the blessings that God has for you, you're missing out on all that God would offer through the Spirit. This is the apex of Christian experience, which is interesting to me because that's exactly what Paul is tackling here in Acts chapter 12, 13, and 14. And so let me just say a couple things this morning before we begin, because there is a sense this morning that I understand the sincere desire of some of our charismatic friends to know the depth of their Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but in my own life, I would hate to think that if there's more to get out of Christianity, that I would come to the end of my life, and at the end, I would have somehow missed it. That there was more for me to get in, in knowledge and experience of the Savior. There's an old poem that says, The saddest words of tongue or pen are the saddest, the saddest are these, what might have been. And I certainly don't want to live my Christian life and miss out. If, if there's more to get out of Christ and his spirit, I want it. And I I believe that was Peter's attitude. Do you remember in John 13 when when Peter is sitting around the disciples and Jesus girds himself with a towel, the job of a slave, and begins to wash the filthy feet of his disciples? And they're all thinking the same thing. What are you doing? This is the job of a slave. You you should not be doing this. He comes to Peter, and Peter says, Lord, you are not. I love how Peter always tells the Lord what he's going to do. You are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, oh, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part in me. And Peter says, Lord, if that's the case, wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything. Peter loved Christ, and he wanted all of him. And I think for us this morning, who are not charismatic in that sense, that it would be well for us to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves this simple question, how much of Christ do you want? Too many of us are content with Sunday morning Christianity. And you're happy just to get enough to get fire insurance from hell, and I'll do my Sunday deal. But I don't want to lose control. I like the song. It says, um, "Reckless, abandoned, wrapped with common sense." That's how we we justify ourselves. And for many of this of us this morning, there is a sense that. I don't want to lose control. I'm happy with what's going on now. I don't need any more. But can I tell you something about the idea of control? It's a fallacy. You have none. You have none. Our entire life is a risk. All of it. You took a risk this morning getting in your car and driving to church. It was a risk. It was calculated. For some of you, it's probably more serious than others the way you drive. But it was a risk. I took a risk walking across the field this morning. Life is a risk. And the truth is, we have this idea that I just want to hold on, I want to control it. But there is no control. And Jesus reminded us that the the person who will save his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for the gospel and my sake will save it. And so maybe it would be wise for us this morning instead of just bashing a group of people that we put a label on and sort of just disregard them? How much desire do we have to know the fullness and the beauty of Christ? And so I understand that idea that a sincere desire to know him better. I also understand that there are those who are in the charismatic movement that are a little different and they say we're continuationists and what we say is that we are, we are open but cautious. There are men like Piper, Grudem, and Carson who redefine the gifts. They say they're not the same thing, and they acknowledge that whatever was happening in the New Testament is not happening today in the charismatic movement. Right? Prophecy can be off you know, by 50%, 30%, 80%. Um, the healing that takes place apparently today is not like it was in the New Testament, immediate undeniable, permanent, right? And and so so they sort of change those meanings to say, hey, we're open, but we're cautious. And if I'm going to be honest this morning, and, and love thinks no evil, I would say I think they're doing that, perhaps, because they don't want to put God in a box. And that certainly is commendable. I don't want to put God in a box either, because the God of the universe cannot be stuffed into your personal box. He can't be. And who am I to say how God will work in the lives of his people? He does amazing things. He does different, unusual things at times. But there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot be tempted with sin. God does not tempt us with sin. God cannot go against his nature. And so, certainly we don't put God in a box, but we we have to understand that as we look at these topics that we have to bring everything into the light of Scripture this morning. We do not have the luxury or the authority to make stuff up. It'd be fun. Say whatever you want. Do whatever you want. But we have the Word of God. And so as much as we understand these things, we we have to remember that these um, words are given in a context this morning. And the context is 1 Corinthians 14. And so remember, as we work our way through this, here's the first thing. Paul is writing a letter to the church. It's to the church. And not only is it to the church, it has to do with public worship. What we do when we come together to worship and what that should look like and how it, how it lines up with the word of God. So he's talking in the context of public worship. Number two, he's talking, in, especially in chapter 14, the major theme that you will see over and over and over again is edification. That the purpose of coming together as a church this morning is to edify, to build up. And then he tells us that this is accomplished by the proclamation of truth. And he reminds them, a church that was bent on this one gift of speaking in tongues, that the greatest gift is prophecy. The greatest gift is the proclamation of God's word and God's truth. And so what I'd like to do this morning is just work our way through chapter 14. I know we were there last week. We only had two points last week. But I want to talk about the issues that Paul brings up that are relevant for this issue, for the Corinthians and relevant for us today. And so let's look at our Bibles this morning. First Corinthians chapter 14. Let's begin at verse number 1. Follow after charity or love. And desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. Let me just stop you there for a minute. And I don't know what kind of Bible you're looking at this morning. But some of you will have a Bible this morning that reads, um, He that speaks in a tongue. And others will have the word unknown there, but if you have the word unknown there, it is, is almost always in italics. Okay, so you can look at your Bible. My Bible has he that speaketh in an unknown tongue, and the word unknown is italics. Do you know why it's italics? It's italics because the, the, the translators, when they're looking at that, that portion of Scripture, that word unknown was not there. The word tongue was. And in 1611, for my Bible... They thought that putting the word unknown there would clarify what was what was being talked about, that this is a tongue that we don't know. It's not there, though. So if you were to read that, it would say, he that speaketh in a tongue. And just so that you know, the word tongue literally means language. That's what it means. There's no way around that. It means language. A matter of fact, the letter from the translators in the King James Bible say this, that we have we have translated in the English tongue. And so, I, I think there's some confusion with some of our friends because they see this idea of unknown tongue and, and they, they act as if somehow, way, this is not language. But it is. Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. That was extra. It didn't cost you anything, so let's just move on, Okay. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification, to exhortation, and comfort. We talked about that last week. Verse number four. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. Paul says, I would that you all spake with tongues. And here's where people say, there it is. I don't know what you're talking about. Paul says, I would that you'd all speak with tongues. Well, a couple things about that statement. Uh, first off, we understand that, that Paul is not saying that he wants everybody in the church to speak in tongues because there's different giftings. In, we, just chapter 12 says that. And he uses that same phrase back in chapter 7 when he says, I wish that you were all like I was, single. But he knew that they weren't. He's making a comparison here. Look what he says. I wish that you could all speak in tongues but rather that you prophesy. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaketh with tongues, except he interpret. Which is really important to see that. Paul just said, I would rather you speak the proclamation of truth so people understand. But if you have this real gift, that's a language, make sure you interpret it. Why? So it becomes like prophecy. So now it encourages, now it exhorts, now it edifies. Now, brethren, If I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And so Paul begins here and he says, here's the first issue. The first issue is the issue of edification. Edification, building up. He tells us that the gift of tongues, the way it was being done in Corinth, was for the speaker, not for the church. But he says, when you proclaim the truth of the Word of God, that proclamation is for everyone. I want you to understand something this morning. When we come together this morning, church is not about you, it's not about me, it's not about what I get out of it. We we are so self-centered and so selfish, and we have this consumer attitude that's carried on from the world we live in into the walls of the church. It's like, well, what are you going to do for me? It's all about me. And and listen to me, we are all selfish. I used to have a youth group years ago, and I I, I'd always say teenagers are selfish, and they are. We're all selfish. And even the good things that we do, we have selfish motivations. I was talking to my son the other day, and he was talking about his take on humanity. And he was right on, he said, even the things that I think are good, when I ask myself why I do them, it's because they make me feel good. People recognize me. People think I'm a good guy. And so the idea of church is not about you it's never about you. It's not about me. It's about coming together for edification. That's what we do when we come here. That's why you showing up here is important. That's why membership is important. That's why ministry is important. Because it's not about what you get out of it. It's what we give when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to be built up. So Paul says the issue on this is edification. It is the building up of believers. And when you proclaim the truth, it is for everyone, for children, for adults. That's why prophecy, the proclamation of truth, is so much better. It hits everybody. Everybody. It edifies. Now, I want to tell you something that you may not be aware of, but this is the reason that when we come together on Sunday morning, it's not just an evangelistic kind of service. We just try to deal with all the people who are lost in our church services. That's not why the church comes together. The church comes together as believers in Christ. We meet, we come together, we fellowship, we, we come to edify one another. It is not an evangelistic service. Now, granted, there are times that we, we, we understand that, but the truth is that when we come together, it is to open the word of God for believers. So then why is it that all you talk about around here is the gospel? If that's true, then why is it the gospel? Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, that's all we hear is the gospel. And I'm glad you asked. Here's why. Because the gospel is not only the message of our salvation, but it is the means of our sanctification. And the more I come into a profound understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it changes my life as a believer. Church of God, never weary of hearing the gospel you can't. It's what transforms us. It's what, when we leave this place, helps us. When, when someone hurts us, whether real or perceived, how do I forgive them? I'll just forget about it. That doesn't work. Do you forget? No, you don't forget. What you do is you go to the cross of Jesus Christ and you realize that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. And if he forgave me, the one who sins against him constantly, on an hourly basis, certainly because of that forgiveness, I can forgive you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. How is it that I can love unlovely people who irritate me, who get under my skin, who are in this body of believers? You know who you are. How does that happen? It happens because I go back to Calvary and know that while I was a sinner, Christ Loved me, for God so loved the world that he gave. And if he can love me, then certainly I can extend that to you. That's the gospel. And so we come together to edify. And now he gives us an illustration of that. Look at verse number 7. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? And this was interesting because Corinth was known for one of the great ancient music halls. They seated about 20,000 people there. And so they were familiar with instruments. And what he says is, listen, there are instruments, but they all have a purpose. They're, they have notes. They have melodies. They have, they, they have timing. They have rhythm. They have volume. And, and if you don't have that, what you have is a mess. Rebecca, do you mind? It's too late. Now I have it. All right? That even sounds good. That was kind of good. I'm sorry. How do you make this thing sound bad? That even sounds good. That blew my illustration because I think I should start playing the guitar. But those of you who know how to play guitar, you knew that was just sound and noise and nonsense. Didn't make any sense. And so he says, "Listen, you know about music. You know about instruments. Just blowing that thing as hard as you can or strumming like crazy. That's not a symphony." Cacophony, it's a noise. And then he goes on, verse number eight. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? Military terms, you know, you blow, are, is this charge? Is this retreat? Is this taps? Is this reveille? Are we done for the day? The guy just starts blowing on a trumpet and you don't know what he's doing. It's chaos, it's confusion. And then he goes on. He, he now tells us about our voices. So likewise, ye except you utter and with the tongue words easy to understand, how shall it be known what is spoken? For he shall speak unto the air, he says, unto the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian unto me. And he says, listen, uh, there, there are, there, today there are probably about 5,000 known languages today, but they have meaning." And the point is, if I'm, if, if I'm in a service, I'm in a public worship service, and someone starts talking that I don't understand what they're saying, it's like they're talking into the air. Every year now, for about the last four or five years, we've taken trips to Guatemala for the, the mission that we help there. And it's an amazing experience. Our folks work hard. And one of the things that happens while we're there is, after hard work, about the fourth day or so, Rudy and Sully want to, to show gratitude for what you've done. So they take the group to the marketplace. And every time you're there, if you've been in Central America, maybe it's the same way in the Caribbean, I don't know. But if you're in Central America, when you go into a marketplace and you look like a tourist, you look like a dollar sign. Period. When when you're coming, you are a dollar sign. When we were in Mexico um, last year, uh, one one of the phrases we heard all the time was, almost free, almost free. Come here, almost free. It was like, almost free, that's a good deal. It wasn't almost free, it was just almost free. And so he gets to the marketplace, and what they say is, um, I got a good deal for you. Like, you're special, right? Oh, for me? Yes, I got a good deal for you. And it goes on, and everybody tries to grab you, and I got a good deal for you. And so we were there, and I was with my boys and my niece, and and they said, hey, Dad, next time they, because after two or three hours of I got a good deal for you, it's really, it wears on you. They said, next time, let's speak German. And, and, and. And and I don't know German. I was in the military long enough to know enough words to get me in trouble, and a couple swear words that were directed toward me. All right, but I, I don't know. And so the guy came up and said, "I got a good deal for you." I said is he Deutsch? So I got a good deal for you. I said I'm Schuleganzivor, is the Bahnhof. I, had a, I was in links then with Germans like which is I think part of the reason people and after we're done, why it was foolishness. It meant nothing. And so Paul says, when we're talking about this gift, the issue is edification. If I don't understand what's being said, what's the purpose? There is none. There's none. And so he says, there's the issue of edification. Verse number 12. Even so, ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may. Excel to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. And This is the next issue. It's the issue of excellence. And I, and I think it's amazing what, what Paul does here. Even in the midst of rebuking this church, he recognizes and acknowledges in their heart, for many of them, they still had a desire to serve. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So there's this... The issue of excellence. I do want you to serve, but I want you to serve in a way that builds people up. I think what's lacking in our world today is this idea of service. Too many of us, we come to church and we want to be served. And we get all bent out of shape if no one's serving us. What have you done for me lately? Attitude. And the truth is, as believers, we should come together and in our heart, we should long to serve, to build up, to help someone else. It's what makes us or should make us unique. Listen, we have done lots of wrong things raising our kids. Our kids could write books on what we've done wrong. But I'll tell you this, from the time we were in ministry, those boys, whether they were 2 years old or 12 years old, whenever we did something, we served together. Always. If there was snow to shovel... Those three boys were shoveling snow. If there were r- r- leaves to rake, they would rake the leaves. If there was garbage to take out, they'd take out the garbage. If there was cleaning at the church, they would clean the church. And can I tell you something? Some of the greatest joys we've had as a family have been serving. <laughs> serving. Losing yourself. Giving for someone else. And we've lost that. And for too many of us, you come and you want to be served. And the minute it doesn't happen, Jesus said, I I came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and give my life a ransom for many. We should walk in the steps of our Savior. So he says, the issue of excellence. Even in the midst of this church, there were people who had a desire to serve. We should serve. We should edify. We should build up one another. Verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, he says, For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. Else, when thou shalt bless with the spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen? At thy giving of thanks, seeing he understands not what thou sayest. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. Is not edified. I thank God. I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others also than ten thousand words in an unknown tongue. And so now Paul tackles the issue of engagement. He says. You want to come and talk about your praying. I'm praying, and I'm just praying in this foreign language. And he says, why? Why? We should, have been ga- we should be engaged in our minds. Not just losing ourselves emotionally, but there should be something happening in our heads. Listen, I'm not against emotions. Emotions are important. We are emotional beings. But too many of us, we live our lives because of our emotions. This is how I feel, so I do it. Bad idea. And here were people in the church, I'm going to pray in this language that nobody understands. I don't even understand. it. And Paul says, no, engage your mind. God does not ask us to check our brains and at the door in the church of Jesus Christ. He says, love the Lord with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's all involved there. And if someone comes in, and they're if we're in an English congregation and someone comes in front, and they start praying in Chinese, and they don't understand it. What's the reason? God doesn't understand English? There is none. And Paul says, you're speaking into the air. It's foolishness. I'm not just praying in the Spirit. I know it's happening. He says, no, engage your mind. Be engaged. Think. Look at scriptures, and then he says, Engage the message. Engage the message. If you don't understand what's being said, how can you say amen or amen for you Presbyterians? If I stood up and said, I'm sure the Vita, well, is the Bahnhof. you can going to say amen to that? You could if you didn't know where the train station was. But if you didn't care about the train station, it wouldn't matter. And Paul says, I would rather speak five words that you understand. Five. Compared to 10,000. Engage in the message. When we come to worship, we worship in spirit and truth, and we need to engage our minds. We need to be engaged in the message. I don't know why you come. I don't. But I hope when you come, you're engaged in the message. I hope you're not just coming for a social Ah, I do church. It's a social gathering. Or you come to be entertained. You've got a chuckle this morning, and so it's all good. Or you come to see that crazy guy's going to finally die of a heart attack going back and forth on the platform. I don't know why you come. But when you come, you ought to engage your mind, and you ought to be engaged in the message. Speak, oh Lord. Speak. Okay, he's speaking. Are you engaged in the message? What are you going to do about it? Enough of the, hey, that was really a good message. What does that even mean? If you're engaged in the message, forget about really good message, Pastor. Go home and do whatever God spoke to you about doing. Don't make yourself feel better because you made me feel better. I don't need it. Why don't you engage in the message and you say, God, you spoke to my heart about this issue and that issue. You've exposed me, and I'm going to leave this place, and I'm going to do what you said to do. Too many of us walk out of this place, we were never engaged. We sit week in and week out and never take the take one thing home and do it. And so he says, be engaged. And then finally this morning, look at verse number 20. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Howbeit in malice, be children, but in understanding, be men. And again, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, right? The church was messed up. And when it came to malice or evil, they had it down. Oh, the Corinthians were really good at this. They would would smile in your face. And when you left, they'd gossip about you. They were critical. They were judgmental. They lifted themselves up. They knew how to look like the world, and they did a really great job at it. When they opened their mouth, garbage came out. They never asked the question, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? They were good. They were all grown up in evil. And Paul says, that's not the church of Jesus Christ. You should be children in evil. But in understanding, you should be mature. And so, church of Christ, this morning, are you a child in understanding? And a grown up in evil? The way we interact in this place and the way we live outside this place is a telltale sign of what we believe about Christ. And for many of us, our lips, our words, our attitudes, our actions, our desires, our goals, they never speak of the glory of a risen Christ. And when it comes to understanding the Word of God and applying it to our lives, we are children. And Paul says to the Corinthians, and he says to the Chathamites this morning, it's time to grow up. And we grow through the knowledge of his word. And until we as a body of believers take serious the word of God, not our feelings, not our emotions, not what someone told us, not our family history, the word of God, we will not grow the way God has intended us to grow, speaking the truth and love that we may grow up into Christ. And so this morning, as we look at the charismatic issue with the tongues, Paul says, listen, the issue is edification. Are you being built up? The issue is excellence. Are you serving for others? The issue is not evil, growing up as children. And the issue is engagement. Engaging your mind, engaging the message. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.